Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to read, uh, we're going to look at verses 29 through 31 of Matthew chapter 15. Beginning in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would give us the spirit of illumination and of understanding. Lord, we pray that You would guide us into all truth by the power of Your Spirit. I pray that You would be with Your servant as he attempts to expound Your Word and be with Your people as, as we all receive it. Help us to receive it with gladness. Lord, I ask that Your Spirit would apply this text to us in very specific ways, ways that I can't personally think of or speak to. We ask that You would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So I want to begin by way of introduction with a little bit of pastoral confession. And at the same time, I want that confession to lead into exhortation. And then hopefully the idea is both of these things will stir your hearts in regards uh, to this passage that we're looking at. And my prayer is that the, 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 these two things, confession and exhortation, would spur you on to what I believe is the main goal of this passage, the main point of this passage, and, and as a matter of fact, the main goal of all of human history, and that is uh, to glorify the God of Israel. Now, as I began to prepare for this passage, as I read it, my mind, as perhaps some of your minds are, my mind was immediately drawn to some other passages. And I want to read those, um, those passages. We've all already read them and studied them, but I'm going to read them again just to uh, make a point. The first one is Matthew chapter uh, 4, verses 23 and 24. Matthew says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. The next one is from chapter 8. Of Matthew's Gospel, verses 14 through 16. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then. 
a passage we studied just a few weeks ago from Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now all of these passages, again, I've, I've read in your hearing, we've studied, I've preached in your hearing, and then we come to Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, and it looks like we have yet another passage saying almost the same thing, almost verbatim. And this passage can be approached in... I'm going to say two ways. It can be preached in two ways. It can be read from two different perspectives and it can be received in two different ways. And I want to read this passage from Isaiah to, to, to make a point. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares Lord. He's saying, I'm not impressed with anything you can make. But then he says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. Build a lavish temple. Big deal. I made those rocks. Use your hands. I made those hands. But... Here's what gets God's attention. This is the one to whom I will look. One who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now my confession is when I read this passage, I was tempted to approach it in a less than humbling manner. Less than, than, than trembling manner. I, I was not uh, humbled by it at first when I began to study. I read it over and over. I wanted to almost stand over it arrogantly and say, well, we've heard this. We've read it. We've studied it. Studied it. And that's the first attitude that we might use to approach this. An attitude of, of uh, boredom. Of, of sort of a humdrum attitude. That this passage uh, lacks luster. Matthew is giving us something that's just, he's just overstated. He just wasn't thinking when he wrote this. Because we learned just a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus heals broken bodies. We've learned that sickness and disease and death all point us back to the sin that is in our members, that wages war in our bodies. And, and so because there is sin... There is sickness and there is disease and there is, there is abnormality and there's, there are ailments. We've learned that in this time period, sickness and disease often would exclude a person from the gathered assembly. And in that time period with the temple and the tabernacle, that meant exclusion from the presence of God. And so we get that picture. We've learned that ailments like leprosy, pain, and this goes way back, paint a perfect picture of, of the soul-corroding effects of sin. It comes in, it just begins to wreak havoc, and it gets worse and worse and worse until we're finally destroyed. And then we learned in chapter 8, specifically verse 17, where Matthew quotes from Isaiah that <coughs> these mass healings that Jesus would do foreshadow the consummation of the kingdom where Jesus would finally complete what He began to do on the cross. When He, he defeated all of His enemies, the last enemy being death, 
which he conquered at the crucifixion or at the resurrection, now we're simply awaiting for him to consummate and bring to a conclusion all that he's done. And we see that in these mass healings, just little glimpses of what it will be like someday when the kingdom is finally full and consummated. There will be no sickness, there will be no disease, there will be no more death, no more crying and no more tears. And so we we might be tempted to say, we get it already. Matthew, we understand. We've heard this sermon, or I could say I've preached this sermon. How do I preach the same sermon again? We already know Jesus has miraculous powers. Pastorally, I come to this sinfully and say, how could I preach this text and make it entertaining again? And that's not, that's not right. My, my goal is not to make the Word of God entertaining. It's to proclaim the Word of God. That's the wrong approach. There's another approach that I think would be a proper approach, and that is that we would come to this passage hungry like beggars seeking bread. It's often been said, and I think of this a lot of, a lot of times in my preaching ministry, I come before you like a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread, or where I've found bread. Now imagine a beggar colony when one beggar returns and says, guys, I found some bread. They don't say... You found bread yesterday. We had bread yesterday. Boy, man, is it the same kind of bread we had yesterday? Because it's, I mean, I might as well just sit here. No, they're going to say, tell us about that bread. What did it smell like? Was it, did you taste it? Did you bring us any? As a matter of fact, just tell us where to find it and we'll go get it because we want bread. And, and I think that that's how we should approach this passage. We should say, Tell me again how Jesus heals. Let me, let me hear it again. Because this past week, my, my kids have had the sniffles or something's happened to me and I'm seeing my body is tainted with sin. My, my soul is affected with sin. It's leading to mortal decay in my members. I'm seeing my innate sinfulness. I've tried over and over and over to defeat and put away sin. And it seems like I'm only... As sinful as I've ever been, I'm longing for the consummation of the kingdom. So tell me again about Jesus, the healer. Tell me again about the great physician. Tell me again about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Tell me about His power over sin and sickness and death. Remind me again of what Christ began in His earthly ministry that will finally be consummated in His kingdom. That's how we should approach this passage. Not bored, but excited. And so today we get to look again at the Christ who heals, the Christ who redeems, the Christ who rescues, who restores, and who saves. And that should never get old. We should always come to these passages trembling at what Christ has done and at the power that He displays. Now, just a a word about the flow of this chapter. Last week we saw the great faith of a Canaanite woman. A Gentile displaying faith in Christ. And today we move into the next logical action or the next logical conclusion if we're painting a picture of of redemption and salvation. And I want to focus on the last six words of verse 31. They glorified the God of Israel. That's That's where we're going. We're going to talk about what that means. And then we're going to look at just a moment at the the biblical mandate for us to glorify the God of Israel. So beginning in verse 29 through most of verse 30, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and He went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, 
the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. And we'll stop there. I believe what we have here, in contrast to what the other passages were, more like summaries of, of perhaps days, weeks, months of healing, I think this is probably a snapshot event. I don't think that it makes a whole lot of sense that Jesus went up onto the mountain and sat down for days or weeks or months and people just continue. I believe this happened in a moment. He went up to this place and he sat down. The crowds have been after him, after him, after him. He's sat down maybe to rest, maybe just to become more um, accessible to the people. And they brought their lame, their blind, their crippled, their mute, many others, probably demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, all of these things... They brought them to where he was sitting and they put them at his feet. And the end of verse 30 says, And he healed them. Now again, is that humdrum information? Does that bore you? Do you, do you come to that when it, when it names all of these ailments, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, the leprous, the paralytics, the epileptics, you name it. They brought all of And it says, and he healed them. Do you say, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Jesus heals. Or, do you say, man, he healed them. I mean, I just read it in chapter 14. I read it in chapter 8. I read it in chapter 4. And I read it again, and I'm, I'm just captivated again. He healed them. They were fixed. Do you respond like the crowds? In verse 31, he healed them so that the crowd wondered. They were amazed. They were astonished. Now again, Jesus' fame is growing. It's reached into the courts of Herod. It's reached to the, the shores of Gennesaret where they see him and they know who he is. He sat down and the crowds have followed him and they've come to him with their ailing because they believe this is the man who can heal the, the sick and the, the wounded and the crippled. They bring them to him. He does exactly what they thought he was going to do. They, that's why they came. They displayed what I would believe a, some sort of faith in this man Jesus. He does it. And they don't say, good, that's what we thought you were going to do. We knew, you, we knew you would do that. They are amazed they're astonished. The reality of what is happening never grew old to them. And, and I believe it's probably because they were able to see it. We, we struggle. We, we have a really hard time grasping this because we've never seen healing like this. Uh, healing like we understand is, is usually through medicine over time or through a surgery and, and uh, going through rehabilitation to get back to a state. And that's, that's healing from God. But we can't imagine a person with a leg that doesn't work or a body that doesn't work in an instant just being better. And the Word says, Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And that's where we struggle. It's really hard for us to, to comprehend the mighty power of Jesus when we can't see it. And, and we, we should pray often. Help us to understand and experience this power even though we're not eyewitnesses. We have to take God at His Word. And they were amazed and we should be amazed as well. But that leads to the result. They, they wondered when they saw the mute speaking. People who could not speak spoke. 
the crippled, healthy, people who people whose bodies were broken were made whole, the lame, people who could not walk, arose and walk, the blind, those who could not see, saw, they saw all these things and the end goal, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, there have been many reactions to Jesus so far. We've seen unbelief, we've seen skepticism, we've seen, we've seen questions, we've seen blasphemy. And last week we saw great faith. That's what we want to see is great faith. But is that all that we want to see? Is it, are we satisfied with just she believed? She had faith. Does it stop there? For us, well, I believe in Jesus. I trust. Is that where it stops? Is the chief end of man to have faith and believe in Jesus? No. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify Him. And so here we see in these crowds, Gentile crowds, what Scripture teaches us is the ultimate end to all of the works of God. All of our labors, all of our preaching, all of our reading, all of our thoughts, all of human history culminates to this point glorifying God. And here we have Gentiles glorifying the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. And if, if the glorification of God is the end goal of everything that we're, we're working towards... Everything that we do, we're saved, we're redeemed, we're regenerated and converted and adopted. And that still all leads not to, well, good, I can get into heaven now. Or good, my sins are forgiven now. Or good, my, my conscience is cleared now. That's not the end goal. The end goal is glorification of God. If, if that is true, and I believe the Bible is clear, then what does it mean to glorify God? If I were to ask you, what does it mean to you to glorify God? What would you say? What comes to your mind when you think of glorifying God? Does that just mean do things with, with positive motives? Do things and just say, well, gosh, I, I hope that, that God is pleased with what I do. Neither of those is correct. And, and neither of those begin to scratch the surface of what it means to actually glorify God. And so I want to talk about this and I'm going to... Break this stuff down. This is going to require a lot of a lot of paying attention and, and listening. To understand what it means to glorify God, we have to understand first the root of that word. To glorify, the root is glory. In the language here, the original word for glorify, doxazo. The original word for glory, doxa, which is where we get the title for the song, the doxology. So we're going to think about glory. And first, just an illustration, I've used this before. When you think of glory, think of a light bulb. And all of its intricate pieces and the way it's put together, when it's hooked to electricity and turned on, power is given, it exudes light. Okay, that light that we see from a light bulb is the manifest presentation of all of its parts working together, and it just shines forth. And we look at the light. We wouldn't be happy to just have a light bulb and say, good, we have light. No, we have to have the, the exuding of the light coming out of it. That's a picture of glory. Glory, and specifically God's glory, is the manifest presentation of God's infinite, majestic nature, which is normally conveyed to humans, oddly enough, in the form of... Bright light. 
So, let's think about God's infinite and majestic nature. What, what does that mean? Well, that is, that is the sum total of all of God's attributes coming together. That's His infinite and majestic nature. So now let's consider some of God's attributes. And here, we are treading on hallowed ground. Consider God's self-existence, His, his self-sustenance. He doesn't need anything outside of Himself in order to exist eternally. He doesn't get tired, He doesn't get hungry, He doesn't get sleepy. He doesn't ever lose any energy that He's always had. Or consider His beauty. That God is the sum of all desirable attributes. If there is a good attribute, it finds its root and foundation in God. Consider His blessedness. That He is perfectly happy and delighted in Himself. God did not create us because He wanted a relationship with us or because He needed us to do something for Him. He's always existed completely and perfectly happy in Himself. Consider God's eternity. Again, we're on hallowed ground. We can't fathom this. He has no beginning and no end. There's not a time, nor has there ever been a time where God was not. Consider His freedom. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Nothing slows Him down. Nothing holds Him back. Nothing trips Him up or causes Him to stumble. He does whatever He wants at all times and in all places. Consider God's goodness. He is always only ever good. He's actually the standard of good. When the Scripture says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, that good is not something defined by us. So we say, all things work together for the good of those who love God. That good is not defined by us, it's defined by God. He's the standard of good. Consider God's holiness, completely separated from sin, not, not able. He, he is a purer eyes than to behold sin in a positive light. He's angry with the wicked every day because He's so holy. He's immutable. That is, He's unchanging. He's never shifted. He's never had a, a, a bad day. We would never approach God and He said, well, I'm just in one of those moods. Yeah. Ever. He's always and forever the same. He's invisible. All that God is will never be visible to us. Ever. We'll never be able to fully see all that God is in His total essence. He's jealous. He, he seeks to protect His own honor Above everything else, He's omniscient. He knows all things. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He can't learn. There's not a fact that He would, he would look down into the future and learn because He knows all things. 1 John 4 8 says, God is love. He freely gives of Himself to others. And that is the definition of love. God is merciful. He shows pity on those who deserve punishment. He's omnipotent. He's, he's sovereign and all-powerful. He does all His holy will. The most powerful, raging river in the world could not move one speck of sedimentary dust if it did not derive some power from God. 
He's omnipresent. He's not restic- restricted to a particular time or a particular place. He's a God of peace. He's completely separate from confusion. He's a God of perfection. He lacks no good quality. He's a God of righteousness. He is the final standard of what is right and just. He's a spiritual God. He does not have a body like men. And He cannot be fully perceived by our senses. He's a God of truth. He's the standard of truth. And He cannot tell a lie. He's a God who exists in perfect union. All of His attributes work together equally all the time and there's no opposition there. There's nothing that, that would ever lead God's love to outweigh His justice or His wrath. They're equally perfect at all times. He's a God of a God of a sovereign will who decrees whatsoever shall come to pass before the ages began. He's a God of wisdom. He always chooses the best goals and the end goal. He always chooses the best means to that end. There's never going to be a devised another plan that might have worked better than the one God has decreed. And He is a God of wrath. He intensely hates all sin, all fractions and pieces and, and, and little little stains of sin. He hates it. The line has been drawn in the sand. God is on one side and everything that has been affected by sin is on the other. He is opposed to sin. And all of these attributes and more, He is all at once, all forever, all unchanging. None of them is lesser or greater than the rest. We could go on forever just studying theology proper, the study of God. Now God's glory, if all of those attributes and more were the pieces of the light bulb that is God, if we use that illustration, then God's glory is the shining forth of all of those attributes coming together at once and at all times. It it proceeds and, and protrudes out of God. God's glory is the manifest presentation of all of His attributes shining forth at once. And on earth, when that is visibly displayed to humankind, that comes forth in what the Scripture calls unapproachable light. When Moses said, show me your glory, God hit him in the cleft of the rock and covered him and slid by on his backside and Moses' face glued from seeing the glory of God. And just as an aside, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. So from eternity past, all of God's attributes come together. They shine forth like the glow of a bulb. And that glow coming out is the second person of the Trinity. It is the Son. And that Son took on flesh and was nestled into the womb of a virgin and then was born on this planet. Lived and walked. That glory that proceeds from God cloaked in human flesh. So that's glory. That's, that's the noun. Now anytime you add I-F-Y to a word, a noun or an, an adjective, it makes it into a verb. Something you do. So we're, now we're taking something that is, we're turning it into something we do. So to glorify God is to positively acknowledge, recognize, or esteem God's character, nature, all of His attributes. We might say we, we 
We give glory to God in this way by positively acknowledging, recognizing, and esteeming all of His glorious attributes. But when we say, give glory to God, it's not as though He lacked some glory and we can give Him something that He doesn't have. See, all of these attributes come together and we call that His intrinsic glory. They belong naturally to the very essence of who God is. You cannot add to it. You can't take away from it. It can never be diminished. It can never grow. It's intrinsic to His nature. But in the passage, when it says they glorified God, and when we glorify God, and we do things uh, to the glory of God, or we give God the glory, that is called ascribed glory. And ascribed glory is not where we're saying, God, I saw that you lacked some glory. Let me give you some more. Ascribed glory is where we positively praise and recognize and esteem all of God's attributes or some of His attributes because we have experienced them or because we have recognized them in the truth of His Word. We see them. We see that it is good. And then we exalt Him because of that. So to glorify God is to praise God through various outlets for the ways in which His intrinsic glory, the sum total of all of His attributes, has brought us delight and blessing. We see it, we're delighted, we're blessed by it, and then we praise Him because of it. Various outlets. We glorify God by various outlets. That brings up the question, how does one glorify God? And we could say by loving Him and doing what He commands, a very simple and easy definition. Or we could break it down in uh, four different headings. The Puritan Thomas Watson broke this down in his body of divinity. And he said we, we glorify God through appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. So we appreciate, we, we, we place great value on God and all of His attributes. Or... We adore God. We worship Him and praise Him because of all of His attributes. Or we have affection for God. Because of who He is and all of His attributes, that stirs within us a warm, loving affection for Him. We want to be around Him and be with Him and commune with Him and talk to Him and be in His presence. And then there's subjection. Submitting ourselves to God... In all of His various attributes coming together, we submit and we stand ready. Like the angels in, in the throne room with, our, with their feet covered. They, they were not going to stand still. They're always flying, ready to serve at a moment's notice. Always in subjection to whatever God would say, whatever God would command. That's how we... Those are four ways that we can group our glorification of God. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. So all that to say... Glorifying God can be nothing less than expressing appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection toward God in direct response to and connection with all that He has displayed in His intrinsic glory. In other words, you cannot glorify God for being something that He's not. You can say, I'm glorifying God, but it's not glorifying God by definition. You can't glorify God by doing something that opposes one of His attributes. You can't murder to the glory of God. You can't steal to the glory of God. We'll look later. The scripture says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You cannot overeat 
and cross the line into gluttony to the glory of God and say, well, God's glorified. You can't drink and cross the line into uh, non-sobriety or drunkenness and say, well, it's to the glory of God. You cannot commit adultery to the glory of God and say, well, God created these creatures that just they look so appetizing to me. I must look at them with my eyes and I'm just glorifying God. You can't do it. You can't preach a false gospel and say, well, I'm doing it to the glory of God. You can't worship God in humanly devised ways and say, well, I'm just doing whatever I can to the glory of God. Because these things and more, they contradict His attributes. You can't glorify God in a way that contradicts His, His attributes. This glorification of God that I just described, that's what the crowds were doing. They had brought people to Jesus in faith that He could heal them. He healed them. They saw His miraculous power. They were amazed at His abilities. And they responded with appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection to the God of Israel. All because of what they just saw Jesus do. They saw this man Jesus and they glorified the God of Israel. Now when the Pharisees saw the power of Jesus, they didn't say, it's not real. They said, oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They ascribed the power to Satan. What, what kind of worship is that of Satan to say this power is derived from Beelzebub? That's worshiping the devil. Saying he's got these powers. But these crowds saw Jesus' power and they ascribed glory to the God of Israel. Jesus has come into Gentile territory. He's healed a Canaanite woman who referred to Him as the son of David. A very specific Jewish title. What, what Canaanites don't care who David was? But she comes and calls Him son of David. And then Matthew makes a point to let us know these Gentiles are glorifying. He doesn't just say God. The God of Israel. Not the gods of their nations. Not their pagan deities, not their rocks and their tree stumps that they had fashioned and glued stuff to and said, these are our gods. No, they glorified the God of Israel. Israel's God. So let's take that phrase, the God of Israel. What does that mean? What does Matthew want us to, to see these Gentiles doing? It's easy for us because we're Gentiles. So, of course, they glorified the God of Israel. But this was in a time when Gentiles did not glorify the God of Israel. So, this nation, Israel, named after and coming from the man Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. The God of Jacob, the God of this nation, the God of the people that come from Jacob. Well, who's Jacob? Well, Jacob was one of the sons of Isaac. Isaac, the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. Who is Abraham? Again, Gentiles don't care who Abraham is, or Isaac, or Jacob. Abraham, just like this Canaanite woman, was a pagan. From Ur of the Chaldees. Worshipper of false gods. Probably uh, Anna or Anna, false goddess. God had come to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham and He said, In you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. 
Jacob and the twelve tribes coming from his loins were the fruition of the promise that God had made to Abraham. But why would God make a, prom a promise to Abraham? Was well, because in Genesis 3.15 he said, I will put in between, between you and the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. Or between you and, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, your seed, will crush the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his heel. There's a, there's a promise that God has made. And then he comes to Abraham. And Abraham is the beginning of a genealogy that led to the birth of the Savior. So when it says the God of Israel, when Matthew says they glorified the God of Israel, those Gentiles, he's saying they glorified the Creator of heaven and earth. The promise maker to Eve, the covenant maker with Abraham, the rescuer from Egyptian bondage, the preserver of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who had promised, I will be their God and they will be my people. These Gentiles are worshiping that God. The God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Leave them or forsake them. The God who loves His people. His people, with an everlasting love, the Gentiles are coming in and they're glorifying this God. Now, did they know the direct connection between Jesus and God the Father? I, I don't know. Probably not. Um, but I don't know. But, whatever the condition or the extent of their understanding of the Trinity, we do see that their ultimate response, glorifying the God of Israel, glorifying God the Father... That is the desired response from all who would come to Jesus in faith. True faith in Jesus Christ leads to not just faith. Well, okay, I believe now. It leads to appreciation of God. It leads to adoration of God. It leads to affections for God. It leads to subjection. If you meet someone who says they believe in Jesus, but they will not submit to the Word of God, they don't know God. They don't know Christ. Because an immediate response to having your heart of stone removed and given a new heart of flesh and trusting in Christ by faith, an immediate response is, whatever the Word says, I'll do it. I subject myself to God. I don't stand over His Word and say, well, that's just not how I read it. But you subject yourself. And any so-called faith that does not lead to those things is not true faith. Yeah. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's to God's glory. So that's what it means to glorify God, and that's what they were doing. Now, the biblical mandate to glorify God. Many of these verses um, we know, or at least one of them we're very familiar with. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, or do all in a manner that glorifies God. Eat, eating and drinking, the most mundane everyday tasks that you could do, and in the context there of 1 Corinthians, you could do it and possibly somebody's offended at the way you eat and the way you drink. Paul says, you do everything to the glory of God and it is not in God's attributes to un, um, 
wrongfully and willfully offend people for the sake of being offensive. If you know of a way that you can come along beside them and help their faith, that's an attribute of God. Patience and mercy. And so he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Not to your own. Not to the glory of your so-called Christian liberty or the glory of, well, I can do this if I want to. Do all to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.11, he ends that verse by saying that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter says that's the goal. In all of the, the workings of the church and the giftings of the church, the goal is not, well, I want my gift to be seen. I want my gift to shine forth. And the goal is not ultimately just so that the church can function. The church functions to exalt the head who is Christ so that in everything God would be glorified through Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, So glorify God in your body. I was reading, I already had a lot of this finished. I was reading last night in a book and it told a story of a... A, a people who had these ancient ruins they were trying to preserve. And other pagans kept coming and taking little rocks from these ruins to build their own things. And they wanted to preserve it. And so they went and they declared these ruins sacred and stuck a cross in the middle and the pagans wouldn't go near it anymore because that had been sanctified for special use and they wouldn't go near a, a sacred place like that. And, and the book that I was reading said this is what... Paul has done to the Christian's body. He's saying you, you would naturally, originally, have longed to allow ungodly things to pull off pieces of you. But when you come, become a Christian and Paul says glorify God in your body, he stabs the cross of Christ into your soul. And he says this is off limits to anything ungodly anymore. Everything that you do with your physical body is now to be done to glorify God. To exalt Him in all of His attributes. So we're to do everything. When we speak, our words and our conversations with others are to be such that God in all of His attributes are glorified. So we don't tell lies and we don't uh, malign people and we don't do things that, that God hates. We can't do those things and say, well, I'm just glorifying God. It's, it doesn't glorify God. Our actions, everything that we do, is to exalt and praise God in all of His attributes. We can't say, well, I'm going to exalt God in, in three attributes, but those other five, they're just really tough. You're not glorifying God. Because all of His attributes are completely and perfectly summed up in His being all the time, all at once. In the songs that you listen to, in the songs that you sing, God is to be glorified. When you go to work and you labor and you toil, your goal is to praise God in all of His attributes. And if it doesn't align with the attributes of God, it's not to His glory. Every dime that we spend is to be to the glory of God. It's to magnify His attributes. And His attributes are not licentiousness and greed and and self-preservation every dime we spend to the glory of God when it comes to raising children everything we say and everything we do is to exalt God and praise God in all of His attributes you can't take one out you can't say well because it's December I'm going to glorify God 
in raising my children in all of his attributes except for lying. Therefore, Santa's got some great things under the tree for you, son. That's lying to your kids, and that does not bring God glory. Amen. And people will say, well, uh, you know, I'm just, God wouldn't be happy if my kids were upset, would he? He would be unhappy if you lie. That's lying. So you can't glorify God by doing that. You glorify God by telling the truth. And everything that we do, glorify God. And that's what the crowds were doing that day. In that instant, they were glorifying the God of Israel. They were appreciating, adoring, stirred in their affections and subjecting themselves to Him. And no event ever glorified God. No event ever exalted or praised the God of Israel and all of His majestic attributes more than the death of Christ on the cross. Again, consider just a few of God's attributes. God's self-existence and His perfection were displayed on the cross because God did not have to look outside of Himself in order to make atonement for His people. He lacked nothing necessary to redeem them and save us and keep us and hold us. He didn't have to look outside of His own divine essence. Consider His goodness and His love and His mercy. He didn't carry out on us the punishment we deserve. But in His goodness and in His love and in His mercy, He gave Himself. He gave His own Son so that we could be saved. He put forth His Son as the Lamb in our place. Consider His righteousness and His holiness. He could not allow even the sin of His people that He loved. He could not allow our sin to go unchecked. Rather than punish us, He punished our sin in the broken body of His Son. Consider His unity and the peace within the Godhead. That the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, come together and work in perfect union to carry out the plan of redemption. The Father decreeing and electing. The Son coming and atoning. The Spirit applying that work to the preaching of the Gospel. All in perfect harmony. And hinging on the cross of Christ. And God's justice, His wisdom, His wrath. He had to deal with sin. And He had to, to put an end to His anger towards sin and sinners. Especially those of His own people. But He also desired to spare His children from the rod of justice. And so before the ages began, He decreed that His own Son would be put forth as a propitiation. And absorb the full weight of His wrath. And that happened at the cross. And we could go on and on. All of God's infinite majesty displayed perfectly in Jesus Christ, very God of very God, cloaked in human flesh, hanging on a Roman cross in the stead of sinners. And so we come to the Lord's table. And it is in the Lord's Supper that we come and we remember this great glorifying act, the moment in human history where God was the most glorified. We remember that and we, we proclaim this is how God has been most glorified. The fullness of the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ and then Christ hung on a cross. The title, The God of Israel, has a special meaning to us. Now it's different than it was then. Because we're not a part of Old Testament ethnic Israel. I don't have flowing in my veins, as far as I know, 
the blood that came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Paul in Galatians refers to the Israel of God. And that's us. That's who we are. We are spiritual Israel. Heirs of the promises. Co-heirs with Christ. Members of the new covenant that Christ sealed with His own blood. We are here and we worship the God of Israel. And it's this covenant, this new covenant that we commemorate in the Lord's Supper.